This talk is brought to you by the Thomistic Institute. For more talks like this, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. Before I get started, I have a brief message to deliver on behalf of the Thomistic Institute. This spring, the Thomistic Institute launched their new study abroad program in Rome in partnership with the Angelicum, the Dominican University in Rome, which is the Pontifical University of the Dominican Order. In 1265, St. Thomas Aquinas himself founded the first Dominican school in Rome, the medieval predecessor of the Angelicum. The TI Study Abroad program offers students the chance to follow in St. Thomas's footsteps, both literally and metaphorically. At the Angelicum, their study history, their, they study history, philosophy, and theology with world-class professors, just steps from the Roman Forum. I've been to the Angelicum. I can attest that that is truly the case, just steps from the Roman Forum. On the weekends, they explore the many religious and historical sites of Rome, as well as Florence, Siena, Roccasecca, and Orvieto. The TI is accepting applications for spring 2023 right now. The final application deadline is in mid-August of this year. The program runs every spring and is open to any student currently enrolled in a university-level degree program. For more information about the program, please visit ThomisticInstitute.org slash for that thomisticinstitute.org forward slash study hyphen abroad and don't forget to pick up one of the flyers in the back of the room on the way out <laughs> uh yeah okay so anyway um you know there you have it so give that some thought all right um so uh, all right, as you all well know, we live in a religiously pluralistic society that tends to breed an attitude of religious indifferentism or religious relativism, whereby all religions are regarded as more or less equal, with no one being better than another, to the extent that many in society have an allergic reaction to one religion being singled out as superior to any other it's even quite possible that many religious believers, whatever their religious affiliation, feel the same way, conditioned as they are to express tolerance toward all religions. Hence, you know, the coexist. We are all familiar with the coexist bumper sticker. We've seen it on cars all the time. Such that they balk at the view that perhaps even their own religion is the right religion. Or short of this, maybe they're in the very least uncomfortable with or skeptical about any absolute truth claims that any religious affiliation, including their own, perhaps makes. This general attitude of religious indifferentism is reinforced by another layer at play in our current culture, which is the widespread tendency to look negatively at organized religion in general, and especially at the Catholic Church, the most organized or institutionally established of all organized religions. Religious adherence today tends to get placed in a box of subjective private opinion, something akin to like a personal hobby, consonant with the tendency in our culture to flatten out all things human on a just a purely horizontal level. So you're entitled to have whatever hobby you want, sure, but let's not pretend it's anything more than that. So, yes, you can believe in God or belong to a religion as you see fit, but this should be seen as nothing more than a private or su uh, subjective personal choice 
and it should remain there. Nothing sums up this negative regard for organized religion better than the current phenomenon that goes by the name of I'm spiritual but not religious. Meaning, I believe maybe in some kind of higher power or spiritual energy, maybe even call it God, or maybe it's one own, one's own inner spirit. But if you call it God, it's a God who remains remote or distantly removed and personally uninvolved in our lives, somewhat akin to like the Force in Star Wars, or at best to a deist conception of God, that is a God who made the world and then just left it alone. It means I don't believe in a God who is enmeshed in the nitty-gritty of our lives and who makes personal, moral, and religious demands on us, or at least not in the way dictated by any set religion, since I'm not into organized religion. The issue, in fact, can be pushed even more strongly, especially if we return to the notion mentioned above of religious relativism, a notion that has a harder edge to it, I would say, than simple religious indifferentism. To say religious relativism is to say that religious truth, all religious truth, is relative to the person who believes it. What is true for one is not true for another. That is, that there is no absolute religious truth, full stop. So there's no such thing as one right religion alongside other wrong religions. According to the mindset of religious relativism, then, nothing is more repugnant than some religious affiliation standing up and claiming it's the right or the true religion. And this corresponds to the culture-wide skepticism toward any and all truth claims, especially moral ones, to a hesitancy to kind of stick our heads up and, and, uh, and say, yes, that's true, that's wrong. Which, and here's where it becomes acutely problematic, is exactly what the Catholic Church does. The Catholic Church is willing to, put, to plant its flag on the hill of absolute and universal truth claims. It does claim, for instance, that it is the right religion, the one true religion. All right, this strikes a sour chord for many today. Um, but in, in this lecture, I'll try and explain where the church is coming from. So if you're not Catholic, uh, you'll, you'll get a better grasp of, of what the Catholic Church means in making these claims. And if you are Catholic, then it, hopefully it will... Uh, it will help you to appreciate more what, what it is and means to be Catholic. To this end, I should immediately mention that the situation seems to appear to leave us in an either-or pickle, where we have two mutually exclusive options placed before us. So either you go against the prevailing cultural winds, and if you're Catholic or if you're considering converting, accept the church's truth claims, or you go with the cultural tide and deny the church's absolute truth claims or the absolute truth claims of any religion. Though it should be pointed out that no religion claims itself to be the one true religion in the way that the Catholic Church does, with the possible exception of Islam. We'll be seeing all this a little bit more later. 
This explains why, from the perspective of religious indifferentism and religious relativism, the Catholic Church is, like, public enemy number one. But, let me already warn you to be on your guard. Appearances can be deceiving, especially when attached to simplistic black-and-white either-or propositions. The deeper reality will prove quite different, as we shall see. And let me just say as a general point that Catholic doctrine as a whole is best summed up not as an either-or set of beliefs, but as a both-and set of beliefs. This includes the church's truth claims, odd as it may at first sight seem. It will be both the Catholic Church is the one true church and the truth of other religions, if I can so put it. Or if I advert for a moment to the title of the talk for tonight, it's not as easy as saying, if we're right, then they're wrong. That's a black and white statement that doesn't do justice to the complexity of the issue at hand, nor does it represent the Catholic position accurately. To guide us through this discussion, I'm going to be following closely two sources. The first is the Second Vatican Council or more specifically, certain bold, even explosive truth claims that Vatican II made in various of the documents that it issued. Are you familiar with Vatican II? It's the council which met from 1963 to 1965, the year that I was born. It's the last great ecumenical or general council of the church. It has been preceded in history by 20 others, beginning with Nicaea in 325. The second and major source that I'll be drawing from is a document not so well known today, though it's only just over 20 years old, that is especially instructive relative to tonight's topic. That document is titled Dominus Jesus, literally the Lord Jesus. It came out in 2000. It was issued by the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith, whose cardinal prefect at the time was Joseph Ratzinger. You know who he is? became the future uh, Pope Benedict XVI. Uh, that source, that document, Dominus Jesus, it, it, it is closely related to the documents of Vatican II, as Dominus Jesus tracks closely the truth claims made by the Second Vatican Council that I'll be focusing on. Indeed, the very purpose of that document, Dominus Jesus, was to provide a further elaboration or clarification of these bold truth claims made at the council. So I think it would benefit uh, us greatly if I just walked you through this document's salient points, especially since they bear directly on tonight's topic. Okay, so... Part two, the Catholic Church as the pillar and bulwark of the truth, 1 Timothy 3.15. Let us first examine how the Catholic Church claims to be the one true religion inasmuch as it is the one true Church of Christ, or to quote St. Paul, the pillar and bulwark of the truth. So note here the theological thread. The Catholic Church is the one true religion because it is the one true Church of Christ. The Catholic Christian faith, with all of its truth claims, begins with the person of Christ. There is a direct line from Christ to the church, and only in that order. And at the foundation of this is the mystery of divine revelation. That is, the reality, mystery, really, of God's having intervened in human history, 
better that he has involved himself in human history in a deeply personal and profoundly intimate way in order for man to encounter and know of the goodness, the truth, and the beauty of God's nature. If you can believe in divine revelation, then what I'll say will, uh, will follow. But believing in divine revelation, of course, is not easy in today's world. Indeed, our postmodern, intellectually enlightened age scoffs at the notion of divine revelation, largely on account of the scandal of particularity. You ever hear that notion before, the scandal of particularity? It's the scandal that God should choose a particular people to be his own, setting them apart, uh, holding them up, making them special, that he should incarnate himself in one individual in particular, in the person of Jesus. Our, um, our, uh, our, our enlightened postmodern age has a tendency to more to what you could call like spiritual universalism, not to a salvation that's grounded in historical events, particular individuals, particular persons, okay? Divine revelation was a nice comforting concept for, you know, the ancients and the medievals to believe in, but... As I say, for our intellectually enlightened postmodern age, with its tendency to spiritual universalism, not so much. So it really boils down to whether you accept divine revelation as an historical and theological fact, such as the Bible recounts it or not. Do you believe, does one believe that God chose a certain race to be his own, the Hebrew race, the, the nation of Israel? that he bound himself to them in a sacred covenant of, that is a binding friendship, setting them apart, making them special, forming and uh, really reforming them slowly over time in his own image through word and action until at last he became a member of this race himself, revealing himself fully through the manhood he assumed in the person of Christ. If you do believe that, and that therefore biblically-based religious truth claims don't merely boil down to human opinion, but stand on the very authority of God himself, then you're in a position to grasp what is at the foundation, at the bedrock of the Catholic Church's truth claims, namely the person of Christ. So it begins with Christ, and more specifically with Christ as unique Savior of the world and as the one who brought God's revelation to its fullness. The New Testament makes this uh, clearly attests as much. Okay, so I'll just give you just a very few scriptural uh, references here, uh, some of the biggies. John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Note that I am the way, not one way among others, okay? Do any other great religious figures speak this way? Can you imagine Muhammad saying this, Moses saying this, one of the prophets, I am, I am the truth, I am the way? Further, do you know that that um, I am, do you know that that implicitly identifies Jesus himself with the God of Israel? That is, with the God who addressed Moses in the burning bush. Because uh, the, the name that God revealed to Moses was Yahweh, which translates as I am. In Greek, ego, ami. And John has 
his gospel loaded with I am statements. And each and every time uh, it is John's way of signaling that the God who addressed Moses in the burning bush is the God in the flesh in the person of Jesus. No one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son wishes to reveal him, Matthew eleven twenty seven, Christ is the sole and unique revealer of God. In Christ, the whole fullness of divinity dwells in bodily form, Colossians 1, 9 through 10. The whole fullness of divinity dwells in that body. John 3.16, the famous John 3.16, God so loved the world that he gave his only son so that everyone who believes in him may not perish but may have eternal life. And from that follows what Peter says in Acts 4.12, there is no other name under heaven given among men than the name of Jesus by which we must be saved. And again, St. Paul in 1 Timothy 2.5, there is one mediator between God and man the man, Jesus Christ. Okay? So the first move that that document, Domini Caesars, makes is to affirm the uniqueness and salvific universality of Christ. Okay, so our uh, first passage here from number five of that document. So you can see it there on the screen. As a remedy for this religious relativistic mentality, which is becoming ever more common, it is necessary, above all, to reassert the definitive and complete character of the revelation of Jesus Christ. To this we can append, as Dominus Jesus does, this citation from Vatican II. This is from the Constitution on Divine Revelation, Dei Verbum, number two. The deepest truth about God and the salvation of man shines forth in Christ, who is at the same time the mediator and the fullness of all revelation. It stands to reason Jesus is God himself. He can't reveal himself any more fully than, than by coming among us himself. To make this even clearer relative to the issue at hand, Dominus Jesus states, Therefore, the theory of the limited, incomplete, or imperfect character of the revelation of Jesus Christ, which would be complementary or parallel to that found in other religions, is contrary to the church's faith. The obedience of faith implies acceptance of the truth of Christ's revelation, guaranteed by God, who is truth itself. So this singles out the person of Christ as totally unique among all religious founders or authorities, he is different in kind from all the others, from Muhammad, the Buddha, Confucius, the prophets, Moses, etc. Nothing remotely touches this if we're talking about claims concerning, say, a Muhammad or a Confucius or a prophet or Moses, etc. So if you lined up, got a lineup of all the world's great religious leaders, he's not just one among all of them as if they're equal. He is the unique mediator and universal redeemer. For which reason... Dominus Jesus number 15 follows with this perhaps its most weighty assertion. One can and must say that Jesus Christ has a significance and a value for the human race and its history, which are unique and singular, proper to him alone, 
exclusive, universal, and absolute. Imagine saying that about Moses <laughs> or uh, a prophet. You can't because Jesus is the one God in the flesh. I, you know, would note that Cardinal Ratzinger, who again promulgated Dominus Jesus, would continue to sound this bedrock tenet as Pope Benedict XVI. Indeed, it was a signature theme of this entire pontificate. He kept coming back to it time and again. Before the church, before baptism in the sacraments, is the person of Christ. As Benedict puts it in the opening lines of his inaugural encyclical, Deus Caritas Est, God is Love, he writes, Being Christian is not the result of an ethical choice or a lofty idea, but the encounter with an event, a person, which gives life a new horizon and a decisive direction. Translation, before the church's moral teaching, before the church's creed and its elaborate and well-articulated doctrine, stands the person of Christ and our encounter with him, an encounter that gives our lives new meaning and direction. Consider how important friendships can do this for us in general, especially the highest of human friendships, marriage. When you fall in love and decide to marry a person, this turns your life in a profoundly new direction, determining where you will live, where you will work, etc. And it shapes you for the rest of your life. It's exactly the same, indeed much more so, with Christ. Because friendship with the man Jesus is to have friendship with God himself. And if friendship with God, the ultimate friendship for which we're wired, doesn't have the most decisive impact on our life's direction, then one's Christian faith doesn't really mean much. If at the core of a Christian's life there isn't the person of Jesus and one's friendship with him, a person that one knows and loves intimately, then one's Catholic or Christian faith and practice mean very little. The church and the sacraments can only be properly understood by seeing them as extending one's relationship with Christ to every crevice, every crevice, every nook and cranny of our lives. Okay, fine, on the person of Christ. So how do we get from Christ to the church? Well, the first quick answer is because God wills it so. Christ founded, he established the church to serve as his instrument of salvation. He handpicked and called the apostles and gave them power and authority to teach, sanctify, and rule in his name. Uh, indeed, apostle, anyone know what the word apostle actually means? It means uh, ambassador, emissary. So they are ambassadors, they represent Christ in his absence. The second quick answer to how we get from Christ to the church uh, is closely linked to the first. It's because Christ identifies himself with the church. Christ and the church form one mystic person. That's the language of St. Thomas Aquinas. Or a single whole Christ. That's how Dominus Jesus puts it. Okay, so Jesus himself implies as much when he says in John's gospel, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. John 15, 5. 
Translation, the baptized become grafted onto Christ and thereby abide in him so that we form, we with Christ form a single whole vine plant, if you, if you will. Uh, also, in Jesus' initial revelation to St. Paul, Saul, Paul, he asked, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Acts 9, 4 to 5. Imagine at first sight how confusing that must have been to Saul, Paul. What is he talking about? I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. That experience that message that clearly percolated in Paul's mind and really got into his bones. Because later in his letters, we find Paul often calling the church the body of Christ. So I have just a few references there for you. Romans 12, 5, 1 Corinthians 12, 27, Ephesians 4, 12, Colossians 1, 24. And by calling the church the body of Christ, he means not a loose association, but a quite literal, living, organic body joined to Christ as head. Thus, St. Thomas Aquinas himself says, the head and members are as one mystic person, and therefore Christ's satisfaction and power to save belong to all the faithful as being his members. Teresa of Avila, the way she puts it, is we, the church, are Christ's hands, his mouth, his eyes. Pope St. Leo the Great he wrote, what was visible in Christ has passed over into the church. I should note that Aquinas alerts us to a foundational principle for why God sets it up this way. He writes this in his commentary on John's gospel. To ennoble man, God wished that knowledge of himself be imparted to men through certain men. To ennoble man, that's the phrase that really stands out for me. His setting it up this way, it redounds to our glory. And God wishes this. This is the kind of God we have. He wants to, if you will, give away his glory and let his lowly, unworthy creatures share in what's proper to him. And of course, this principle of the ennobling of man it extends beyond imparting knowledge of God. It extends to imparting salvation itself. So we might put it this way. To a noble man, God wished that salvation and reconciliation with himself be imparted to men through certain men. And so we find Vatican II, specifically Gaudimit Spes number 32, asserting this. It has pleased God to make men holy and save them, not merely as individuals without bond or link between them, but by making them into a single people, a people which acknowledges him in truth and serves him in holiness. He wishes us, God wishes us to share in the glory that's proper to him by playing an active causal role in the salvation of the world. We share in the dignity of being true causes of salvation. Secondary causes, to be sure, that remain dependent upon God, the primary cause. But God loves to impart the power of causality, which is proper to him, to his creatures. And especially to his highest creatures, which is human beings. So let's look at how Dominus Jesus puts this mystery. 
Christ himself is in the church and the church is in him. Jesus Christ continues his presence and his work of salvation in the church and by means of the church. Christ and the church, because together they form head and body, constitute a single whole Christ. That's number 16. This means that what we say of Christ, we can say of the church. And by church, the document means most fully and properly the Catholic Church, as we'll see in a moment. But in other terms, to say the Catholic Church is the one true church is to assert that Jesus Christ is the one true Savior and mediator. It's to assert nothing more, nothing less. So, number 16 of Dominus Jesus writes, Therefore, in connection with the unicity and universality of the salvific mediation of Jesus Christ, the unicity of the church founded by him must be firmly believed as a truth of Catholic faith. Just as there is one Christ, so there exists a single body of Christ, a single bride of Christ. Here, I think it's helpful in clarifying to turn to the notion of instrumentality. This is an Aristotelian notion, but it's one that Aquinas employs to great end in reference both to Christ's humanity and to the sacraments, uh, and thus to the church, uh, because the church is the primordial sacrament. Vatican II calls the church the universal sacrament of salvation. By sacrament, what I mean is visible instrument of salvation. So actually, Christ's humanity is the primordial sacrament, because it's the instrument through which his Godhead, his divinity, saves the human race. So the church acts as Christ's extended instrument of salvation. To explain how this is so, Aquinas distinguishes between a conjoined instrument and a separated or extended instrument. So look at this passage from the Summa of, of Theology. An instrument is twofold, the one separate as a stick, the other united as a hand. Moreover, the separated instrument is moved by means of the united instrument as a stick by the hand. Now, the principal efficient cause of justifying or saving grace is God himself in comparison with whom Christ's humanity is as a united instrument, whereas the sacrament, both the church, the sacrament of Christ, and the sacraments of the church, is as a separated instrument. Consequently, the saving power offered by the sacraments, and thus by the church, derives from Christ's divinity through his humanity. Thus, the church in its very identity and action involves a great mystery, which is that of a grand organic chain of instrumental actions that lead directly back to God himself. So if you just go with that, that metaphor he uses, you know, if, if, if I write, if I take a pen and I, you know, write on the board, so my, uh, the pen would be the separated instrument, the hand would be the conjoined, and it would be the, the, the principal agent would be my mind, where the, the thought, the words are coming from. So the mind would be the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, acting through his humanity as the conjoined instrument and the church and the sacraments as, as the separated instrument. The next move that Dominus Jesus makes is to note that there is historical foundation for identifying the Catholic Church with the church that Christ himself founded and thus with the one single body of Christ. So look at this passage. The Catholic faithful are required to profess, that's the emphasis itself in the document, that there is an historical continuity rooted in apostolic succession 
between the church founded by Christ and the Catholic Church, number 16. So apostolic succession, that, that's a reference to the formal hierarchical structure traceable to the apostles, where the bishops represent the direct successors of the apostles. So Paul established an overseer, literally bishop, uh, over a local church to represent him in his absence, to have authority over that church. And when that overseer, that bishop died, another succeeded him and so on. This is most clearly the case of Rome, uh, with Rome, inasmuch as Peter appointed the bishop of Rome, the overseer of Rome, to succeed him. So you take any bishop you want in the world today, and you can trace his, his line directly back to one of the apostles. At least theoretically you could. If, you know, the, the historical records aren't there, but <laughs> you get the point. It is an historical fact that the Catholic Church is the only church that goes directly back to Jesus himself. Catholics are the original Christians. This fact alone has been enough to convert certain individuals, uh, including like Dorothy Day. It was the church father Ignatius of Antioch, he died in 110, who started calling the Christian church Catholic, meaning universal, that is the Christian church all over the world. Now, the reformers argued, to be fair, that they were retrieving and liberating the faithful remnant of Christians from the shackles of medieval Catholicism. But the fact remains that we can affix the starting date of 1054 to the beginning of the Eastern Orthodox churches, while October 31st, 1517 marks the beginning of all Protestant confessions, and 1534 marks the beginning of the Church of England or the Anglican Communion with the passing of the Act of Supremacy. But on a deeper level, on a deeper theological level, to hold that the Catholic Church goes directly back to Christ and, and is the Church founded by Christ leads to the following weighty punchline. The Catholic Church contains everything Christ intends the, his church to have. So to call the Catholic Church the, the, the true Church of Christ is to say that it has everything the Church intends, everything that Christ intends the Church to have. And here we turn to Vatican Council II, which asserted this bottom line theological truth in various key phrases. First, all the means of salvation are given to her, the Catholic Church. Lumen Gentium number 14. Similar to it, it is through the Christ's Catholic Church alone that the fullness of the means of salvation can be obtained. Unitatis Redenti Grazio, number three. Also in Unitatis Redenti Grazio, number three. The very fullness of grace and truth is entrusted to the Catholic Church. And strongest of all, the one Church of Christ subsists in the Catholic Church, which is governed by the successor of Peter and by the bishops in communion with him. Lumen Gentium number eight. Another way of putting this subsists in is this. Christ is fully present in the Catholic Church. This phrase subsists in, in Latin subsistit in, is quite loaded and generated considerable commentary, enough that Dominus Jesus sought to resolve the dispute by asserting the following. The expression subsists in means that the Church of Christ despite the divisions which exist among Christians, continues to exist fully only in the Catholic Church. Number 16. 
Given this ecclesiological reality, Dominus Jesus lowers the boom, as it were, as to the question of the one true religion. The Christian faithful are therefore not permitted to imagine that the Church of Christ is nothing more than a collection divided yet in some way one of churches and ecclesial communities where all are more or less equal and all therefore equally Christian. This is how many Protestant Christians will refer to the church as just the collection of all Christians. And thus, in number 21 of Dominus Jesus, it would be contrary to the faith to consider the church as one way of salvation alongside those constituted by other religions. God has willed that the church founded by Christ be the instrument of salvation for of all humanity. This truth of faith rules out in a radical way that mentality of indifferentism or religious relativism, whereby it is believed that one religion is as good as another. End quote. That's powerful language, and to the ears of many, it's rather offensive. But notice the very purposeful language used by Vatican II. Uh, let me go back to those. Okay, if you look at those um, passages I have there. So just look at the, at, the, at the phraseology, all the means of salvation, fullness of grace and truth, fullness of the means of salvation, fully only within. It, th- this phrasing, it allows for a both-and proposition on the question of salvation and of true religion especially since we know God wants everyone to be saved. That's in 1 Timothy uh, uh, 2.4. This leaves the door open to partial means of salvation or elements of grace and truth being found in other Christian confessions and even in other religions. Okay, so as Lumen Gentium number 8 puts it, outside of the Catholic Church's structure Many elements can be found of sanctification and truth. What Catholic, for instance, would deny that evangelical Christians give profound witness to the truth of Christ? I have a lot of evangelical friends myself, and frankly, I take a lot of them over a lot of Catholics I know, just in their, in, in the, um, the strength of their faith and the, um, the, the power of their, of their witness. To help clarify, let's return briefly to Thomas Aquinas. After affirming that the church and the sacraments act as Christ's extended or separate instruments. So remember that, the conjoined instrument, the separate instrument. St. Thomas is quick to add this consequential theological caveat. He writes in the Summa Theology, It belongs to the excellence of Christ's power that he could bestow the sacramental effect, which is that of salvation and sanctification, without conferring the exterior sacrament that is, outside of the ritual celebration of the sacrament. Christ is not limited by the church or the sacraments, which he himself established. So too, it belongs to the excellence of Christ's power, that's Thomas's language, that he can save outside the church. That is, that he can be at work in other religions. Dominus Jesus itself, number 19, affirms the same. The action of Christ and the Spirit outside the church's visible boundaries, must not be excluded. Dominus Jesus Numbers 20 to 21 develops this further. For those who are not formally and visibly members of the church, 
salvation in Christ is accessible by virtue of a grace which, while having a mysterious relationship to the church, does not make them formally part of the church, but enlightens them in a way which is accommodated to their spiritual and material situation. So God takes them where they're at, if you will. This grace comes from Christ. It is the result of his sacrifice and is communicated by the Holy Spirit. With respect to the way in which the salvific grace of Christ comes to individual non-Christians, the Second Vatican Council, Agentus number seven, limited itself to the statement that God bestows it, quote, in ways known to himself. Hence, this claim by Vatican II, which Dominus Jesus also repeats, this is Lumen Gentium number 62, the unique mediation of the Redeemer does not exclude, but rather gives rise to a manifold cooperation, even of other religious confessions, which is but a participation in this one source, the source being Christ. So let me put it this way. Even if the various Christian confessions have elements that Christ willed the church to have, all that Christ intends the church to have, the Catholic Church alone has. What does this include? The seven sacraments, especially the Eucharist with the real presence. The Bible and its normative interpreter, the magisterium, that's the teaching office of the church, it's the teaching of the bishops in communion with the Pope, that they offer the normative, that is the infallible summary, explanation, interpretation of the Bible. The Catholic Church has a hierarchical structure, again, that notion of apostolic succession, the line of succession of the bishops, entrusted with safeguarding the deposit of faith going directly back to the apostles. So see it as the apostles, you know, if you're Christian, you believe that Jesus rose from the dead. Have you seen him risen from the dead? No. You believe it based on somebody's witness. Whose witness? The apostles, because they're the ones who saw him. So the bishops are entrusted with that witness and to pass it on and to safeguard it. Some Christian confessions come close to this. So Eastern Orthodox churches, the only thing really missing is the supreme authority of the Bishop of Rome. High Anglicanism, the Oxford movement, think the Oxford movement, which in fact led Newman, Cardinal Newman, to, to become Catholic himself. You know, um, high Anglicanism, uh, they, they will actually distinguish between Roman Catholicism and Anglican Catholicism. They, they consider the Catholic Church to, to be comprised of both the Roman Catholics and Anglican Catholics, and for historical reasons, they're, they're not united. That's how they see it. It's not how Catholics see it, but uh, Roman Catholics, as it were. Uh, St. Louis, Missouri, Synod of Lutherans. Anybody know any St. Louis, Missouri? They, they, for instance, they do believe in the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist. Other Christian confessions uh, don't offer much beyond faith in Jesus and the Trinity and the Bible. Judaism, of course, offers faith in the God of Israel, the God of Revelation, the God who became incarnate in Christ, though they don't believe that. But for, to Christians, of course, they are the older brothers in the faith. Some religions offer monotheism, Islam. Others offer paths of virtue and self-abnegation, Confucianism, Buddhism. Uh, Lumen Gentian numbers 14 to 16 details all this, okay? Including 
that even one's conscience can act as a means of salvation for those of invincible ignorance, that means those who don't believe in Christ or perhaps not even in God, through no fault of their own, that's invincible ignorance, through no fault of their own, and who are of fundamental goodwill, that is, they seek to live in accordance with their conscience. So these are the so-called anonymous Christians. Christ is active through their conscience, as it were. That would include a large category of people today, the so-called nuns. You know what the, you ever hear that term, the nuns? The non, not the nuns, the nuns. They're the ones who check the box, like, you know, forms that have which religious affiliation are you. They check the nun box, so they're called the nuns. It's a new phenomenon. We have um, these in very large numbers today. So lots of metaphors can be used to illustrate this. The Catholic Church offers the GPS of how to get to heaven. Yes, you can get there without the GPS, but it's more difficult and it takes longer. Being Catholic is like taking the freeway to get to your destination. Yes, it's possible to get there in other ways, but they take longer and are more difficult. The Catholic Church is the mighty Mississippi River into which many other tributaries, sometimes larger, sometimes smaller, feed just like how the other religions with their elements of truth, sometimes more, sometimes less, feed into the fullness of truth that is the Catholic Church. Being Catholic is like having glasses that correct one's vision of truth to 2020. Yes, it's possible to see the same object, the same truth without glasses, but it's more blurred and impaired. I know that one. <laughs> so much so that it might seem like you're seeing two different objects or, or truths. I mean, that, you know, that my eyes are they're so bad that if that painting on the wall there, you know, if uh, Matthias, if you described it to me, I, I, I would think I'm seeing something totally different, but in fact, objectively speaking, it's the same thing. You see it better than I see it, however. I assume, right? <laughs> <laughs> I'm starting to get a little, I'm starting to know something's getting more <laughs> Okay, so uh, to return to the title of the lecture then, if we're right, are they wrong? The answer is, yes, Catholics are right, but they, those of other religious adherents, could be partly right or mostly right, or a little bit right, etc. The foregoing helps us to understand the maxim. You ever hear this one? Outside the church, there is no salvation. In Latin, extra ecclesiam nulla salus. The famous saying that goes back to the ancient church, St. Cyril of Jerusalem, for instance, offers the near equivalent when he says, one cannot call God father unless one has the church as mother. It means that when anyone is saved, he is saved by Christ, even if that person doesn't know who he is, that is Christ, if you know who Christ is. And that he is saved by being incorporated into Christ's body, the church, even if he is incorporated imperfectly. St. Thomas offers the operative principle when he writes, in the Summa Theology again, those who are unbaptized, though not actually in the church, are in the church potentially. And this potentiality is rooted in the power of Christ, which is sufficient for the salvation of the whole human race. Translation, Christ can save the unbaptized via the church because in a way they already belong to the church, albeit potentially. Potential is more than nothingness. Potential belonging is not no belonging. And remember, God wants all to be saved. So he makes it as easy as possible 
to be saved. It's therefore misleading to see baptism or incorporation into the church as limiting one's access to salvation or as a roadblock to salvation. It kind of turns it on its head, really, if you think about it. So on the one hand, the Catholic Church professes itself to be the one true church that must remain ever missionary in spirit, seeking to graft all persons onto Christ, thereby making available to them all the means of salvation. And why wouldn't a person want all the means of salvation available to him or her? This is why the Catholic Church must always be missionary, making available to all, all the means of salvation, inviting all to, to lay hold of all the means of salvation, on the other hand, the church, the Catholic Church does not think that if you're not Catholic, you're going to hell. On the contrary, there are elements of truth and goodness in most any religion, and through them Christ can mysteriously, that is not quite visibly or perceptibly, be working their salvation. And this, again, can extend even to the conscience of the nuns, you know, or the, the those of of invincible ignorance who don't believe in Christ or maybe even God and are of fundamental goodwill. Even in this latter case, however, Dominus Jesus number 22 offers a stark truth. Objectively speaking, here you see it, objectively speaking, members of other religions or especially those of no religion, the nuns, are in a gravely deficient situation in comparison with those who in the church have the fullness of the means of salvation such as if I take my glasses off, my vision is, objectively speaking, gravely deficient. Which stands to reason, you know? To have one or two means of salvation is quite deficient relative to all the means of salvation. Catholics, then, should be extremely grateful that they have all the means of salvation available to them. St. Francis de Sales emphasized this point in his great work, The Introduction to the Devout Life. He writes... Marvel at God's goodness and consider his spiritual gifts. You are a child of his church. God has taught you to know himself from your youth. How often has he given you his sacraments? What inspirations and interior light, what reproofs has he given to lead you aright? How often has he forgiven you? How often delivered you from occasions of falling? What opportunities he has granted for your soul's progress? Which leads to say, this comes with grave responsibility. So let me close with an admonition to Catholics, okay? Uh, Lumen Gentium number 14 puts it those this way. If those who have received the Holy Catholic faith through the special grace of Christ fail to respond to that grace in thought, word, and deed, not only shall they not be saved, but they will be the more severely judged. This follows on what Jesus himself says in Luke 12, 48. Everyone to whom much is given, of him much will be required. And of him to whom men commit much, they will demand the more. Or consider the parable of the, of the uh, talents in Matthew 25, 14 to 30. You know that parable? Catholics are those who receive the five talents, those of other religions a lesser sum, and burying five talents is worse than burying two or one. Catholics have been given tremendous graces and they will be held accountable for them. There is no time to waste. Thank you.
you know, there, there's also there's there's notion of implicit baptism by desire. Baptism by desire. Bat, first of all, baptism by blood. Uh, you know, the church came to recognize that that um, the reality of bap- baptism sacraments are all a sign of a of an underlying reality, and the church came to recognize very quickly that. The reality of baptism could be present for some that had yet to undergo the cleansing of water, such as in the case of a catechumen who was martyred for the faith. You know, so they hadn't been baptized yet, but they were martyred for their faith in Christ. So, the church says they their the sign of their baptism was the blood they shed, and then that you know that understanding opened the church's eyes to the recognition that that uh, one's interior disposition. Uh, and that, um, what about, say, what about a catechumen who dies of natural causes before being baptized by water? Then that person's explicit desire to be baptized would be the sign of that person's baptism. And then that extended to it, the possibility of having implicit desire for baptism. So um, this is this is to return to the anonymous Christian. This would be again a person of fundamental goodwill and of invincible ignorance who, no fault of their own, don't have an explicit conscious desire for baptism. But by living in accordance with their conscience, Christ is is the grace of Christ is is or at least can be active, and uh, that they desire Him without even consciously being aware of it. You know. So yes. Um, I'm wondering, this answer might be answered by the Dominicier who quote, quote where it said, like, other religions, while um, they can be said, we're still in grave danger. Um, I was wondering if baptism isn't necessarily a roadblock to salvation for the reason you think you've given, doesn't that, like, reduce the importance of baptism as a sacrament? Like, doesn't that kind of take away, because, like, the baptism is like the washing away of your original sin. But we can say that you can still be saved without that. Doesn't that kind of take away the importance placed on that? Yeah, because because um, what I would say there is that's falling into the trap of seeing it as an either or, either baptism or baptism isn't necessary at all. It's it's the it's the both and proposition. It's a it's a it's a delicate balancing act. So yes, we, we want and must continue to insist that baptism is necessary for salvation. And um, uh, um, and is the ordinary method, means of salvation, mode of salvation. But in fact, what's your name? Jeraika. Ezra. I'm sorry, Jeraika. 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 Okay. Um, <laughs> uh, that. Um, um, the, that baptism actually can come, that there can be other signs of it. So we're, 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 what we're doing is we're continue, continuing to affirm the necessity of baptism for salvation, that no one is saved without being baptized. It's possible, however, to be baptized without the ritual cleansing of water. But make no mistake, that is the ordinary, that is the ordinary sign. The others are extraordinary. But what we don't want to do, which is, you know, St. Thomas is, is so clear on, is what we don't want to do is limit God from saving those he wishes to save, and he wishes to save all, from the ordinary means of salvation that he himself established. He has authority over it. He's free to, to, um, to act outside of it if he, if, he, if he wishes, though in reality he doesn't really act outside of it. But 
it can seem like it from, you know. Thank you. Yeah. So I was just going to put like, you know, just a, a clarifying, you know, situation, right? Let's say I'm living in the first century mm. in the Americas, right? So there's mm. not really, you know, any time for, you know, the, the, the Christian gospel to reach. We'd love to go for Mormon. So, you know, but, but, you know, there's obviously different religions and, and things that were at the time, um, you know, how, I, is it just by living the moral life, God, God, it must obviously be present there in, in the lives of the people living at the time, um, you know, is it, is it just by kind of following one's conscience and, you know, that we might say that, you know, people were saved or that kind of I mean, so, yeah. Say through Jesus, you know. uh, okay, so historically, a very interesting question to ask. What, so when the Americas were discovered in the, uh, in the late 15th century, the Reformation, you know, it, it, it occurred at the same time as the Reformation. And um, Catholics and, uh, and Protestants, in particular the former John Calvin, addressed this dilemma or, you know, um, uh, offered a theological resolution to the dilemma, very divergent um, theological resolutions. For John Calvin, the fact that you had centuries of indigenous American peoples without having any faith in Christ, you know what that was a sign of? He took it to be a sign of? They were predestined for damnation. You know, Calvin believes in double predestination, predestination for salvation, predestination for damnation. And, and explicit faith in Christ is a necessary condition for predestination for salvation. So for him, it was just, it was simply, he just dismissed the problem out of hand because they're obviously predestined for damnation. Catholic missionaries, Dominican Catholic missionaries, turning to a passage in Thomas Aquinas, it's in his treatise on baptism, sorry, on faith, uh, in which Thomas Aquinas is talking about uh, Gentiles, Romans, and Greeks uh, living before uh, the time of Christ. Uh, so, so Thomas offers the principle, which is that um, is obviously they're of invincible ignorance in that they have no chance of having, you know, God's not going to hold them against the fact that they, they uh, have no faith in in his revealed truth because they've had no opportunity. It's not been presented to them. So Aquinas says that by believing in a, a, a sort of providential and mediator type of God or gods, they had implicit faith in Christ. So, uh, so that's, that's exactly what, what, um, you know, what Vatican Council II is getting at, partial means of salvation, partial grace and truth. That this is why, you know, when, when, I, um, when I talk about, or when I teach in the classroom, you know, the ancient pagan religions, yes, there's a lot of error there, but there's also a lot of truth. And, um, and one time my daughter, when she was younger, I was reading stories of Homer to her, and, and I was talking about the gods or something, and I said, you know, um, you know these gods... You know, they're, they're, it's, this is false religion. They're not true. But and then she said, yeah, but at least they believe in God or gods. And they gave us funny stories about 
<laughs> she was like 12 years old or something when she said that, yeah. Uh, so, um, and you know, who, with respect to that, because it, it's, it's directly analogous to, to the, your particular question, is St. Paul in Acts chapter 17. He's in Greece. Uh, he's at the Areopagus, the marketplace in ancient Athens. And um, uh, do you know the scene? It's a very famous scene. So he says to them, you know, on my way up here, I, you know, I noticed uh, you had statues to various gods, and I noticed one in particular to an unknown god. So what does he do? Instead of saying, you stupid, silly pagans with your belief in all these false gods, Instead of, you know, instead of seeing a relationship between Christianity and other religions as one of outright rejection and hostility, he, he recognized that, that there's a bridge there. So he zeroes in on, you know, I did notice there was a statue to an unknown God. Well, I'm not here to give you the name of that God and to tell you that, in fact, he's the only God. Uh, so... In a way, it was his signal to them that though you were in error, you were not in complete error, that in some respects you were on the threshold of truth. And now I'm offering the fullness of truth to you, the fullness of religious truth. Exactly the same for the, the, the circumstances that you mentioned, indigenous American peoples, you know. Yeah. That's uh, analogous to what Dante does in Canto IV yeah. of the Inferno, where with the virtuous pagans, these are people who never heard the word, but who led exemplary lives. And uh, uh, they are not in hell. Uh, They're in a castle, uh, and they talk, and they live fairly good lives uh, until the end of time. And I think, as I understand it, then they join God in heaven. No, unfortunately, no, they're in limbo. They're, right. they're not, they're never making, so they're in a place not of suffering, but they're never making it to heaven, paradise. However, and that's why Virgil leaves, but the Virgil, coming, do they disappear not, or do they not, for, not for Dante. However, Dante does have in paradise, Trajan oh, yeah. and Rephius, okay? And, uh, and oh, yeah. so, you know, and they were, Trajan was given a special revelation on his deathbed. And so, um, two things to say about that. Dante leaves the door open a little bit. I wish he had, uh, I wish he had um, explored more that notion of implicit faith that Thomas Aquinas offers. Because Dante, you know, Aquinas was a, was a, a, a fundamental source for Dante. Right. Uh, it, it, Tom, my point is Thomas Aquinas left the door a lot further open than, than Dante does. So, the answer is really yes and no. I mean, the limbo thing is, you know, no, it's, 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 per, it's eternally limbo. They're, they're going to be there for all eternity. But we've got, but maybe. And the, 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 the reason for the maybe is, well, there's Trajan and there's Rephius up there in paradise. There's also Statius and Purgatory. Yeah. And the weird thing about Trajan is there was, there's a medieval legend that that Trajan came back to life and they like dug him up, and then he got baptized, and then he died again. <laughs> that's, that's why he's in heaven. Yeah. So it's um yeah it's uh um it, you know it's related to the question of infants who die without being baptized. Um, 
this whole notion of baptism by desire, uh, they're, they're certainly their, their parents wanted them, desired baptism for them and would have had them baptized. So wouldn't that baptism of desire extend to them? One could also argue that, that Christ's causality, Christ's the excellence and power of salvation is stronger than Adam's causality that follows from the fall. And through their death, they're configured to Christ's death and so share in his resurrection. So it's, um, um, I like that one personally. Yeah, Matthias? Uh, no, you get it. Um, I just wanted to ask about like there's many a lot of times I often like meet with people who either have like they rejected religion or institutional religion or God outright. There seems to be there's very often a kind of story of like disfiguring of the church and then being on the receiving end of that. And so it's like we can say that okay they've heard the word, but at the same time they've also been kind of, they've been given it tainted. And of course, I guess in some way that actually applies to all of us because you know, there's no one, no one of us who's perfect. But I guess, is there something that we can say about like how accountable someone is if they have been scandalized by the actions of the church? And so, like, given their material and spiritual situation, it's like they're kind of driven away from those instruments to salvation. Which, of course, is like you know, Jesus says, you know, whoever, you know, someone. If one sins and leads another to sin, you know, better than a millstone tied around the neck of the sea. So, very great responsibility on the persons in the church who do that. Yeah. But I guess, is there like a mitigated responsibility on the part of those who receive that? I guess that kind of suffering from the church? Yeah. Boy, that's, that opens up a whole other issue, but it's an important one, obviously. Um, so, just, you know, let me say a couple of things about that. The, the, the amazing thing is, you know, Thomas's quote, to a noble man, God wished that knowledge of himself be imparted to men through certain men or even salvation, knowing full well <laughs> that, that we, will, we all retain our sinfulness. And remember, corruption in the church goes back to the apostles that Jesus himself called, Judas, Peter himself the grave scandal of denying Christ, you know, on the night of his arrest. So Jesus was not naive to, to the, the fact that, um, that there would be sinfulness in the church's members. So we, so we make a distinction, okay? You know, in the creed, we say the church is one, holy, Catholic, and apostolic. Well, how can it be one? It's constituted of now a billion people, over a billion people. It's one because it's the one body of Christ. How could it be holy if we're all sinners? It's the body of Christ, and Christ's body is by definition holy. So what we say is there, there can be sin in the church's members, but insofar as a, an individual Christian sins, really you sit, you're separating yourself from the reality of the church, which is uh, uh, the... Um, um, uh, the holy institution, the holy body of Christ. Uh, so we, you know, and I mean, this extends all the way back to the Old Testament. The, 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 there's a there's a running theme in the Old Testament of the remnant of Israel, the faithful remnant of Israel. There's just a minority few who are faithful to the covenant, faithful to God. Uh, we should not expect the history of the church to be much different. It shouldn't be, right? It always does give scandal. But, um, 
you know, it's, it's um, um, baptism does not wash away the effects of sin completely. It, it, it washes away the guilt of sin, okay? But it does not, it, it does not remove the, our fallen condition, you know, and there are reasons for that. Thomas Aquinas addresses that. But, um, and so, you know, we can expect that our fallen condition will manifest itself. So sometimes, you know, there are phrases for the church. It's the redeeming institution of the redeemed. So it's the institution that offers redemption that's constituted of people who are in need of redemption or being redeemed. Or ecclesia semper reformanda. The church is always in need of reform meaning the members of the church are constantly in need of, of be growing in holiness. You know, and think of the Last Supper that, you know, at, the, at present at the Last Supper was Judas. So you go to Mass, you know, and the person sitting next to you can be in a, in a state of grave sin like Judas was. But, you know, leave that to God. Since, of course, God can only judge a person's mind and heart anyway, uh, let him do the sorting out, you know. Uh, and, and, you know, love Christ. If you love Christ, you have to love his church because they are the one mystic person, Christ and his body of the church. So to accept Christ is to accept his church warts and all, recognizing not, not downplaying the warts, not denying the warts, recognizing that we should try to remove the warts, but, you know, and, and um, uh, you know, the, church, the ancient church confronted this problem in the heresy known as Donatism. You ever hear of that one? You know, so it was, um, you know, it was, it was Donatism arose just after uh, Christianity was legalized by Constantine with the Edict of Milan in 313. Uh, and bef of course, before that, the church had been viciously persecuted. And the, the uh, issue of Donatism arose when you had those who had been ordained priests and bishops who had renounced the faith under persecution. And then once uh, the persecution was lifted and Christianity was, was allowed to worship in public after 313, what to do you know, with, with uh, those uh, ordained persons who had renounced the faith? The Donatists said to be in a state of sin means they cannot they cannot validly celebrate the sacraments. And it was Augustine, St. Augustine, who argued against Donatism and distinguished, you know, the office of, of ordination. Power that is granted to a man when he's ordained is not attached to his personal holiness. He's, he's established, uh, he's, he's appointed to an office, uh, and that office is not attached to him as a person uh, and is as I say, his personal holiness. So he exercises that office validly, no matter his personal state of sin. Now, obviously, it's preferable <laughs> that he be in a state of grace, but uh, it's not necessary. And can you imagine if it were? You, we would never know if you're ever receiving a valid Eucharist because you would never know if the priest was in a state of sin or not. You would never know. Augustine saw that. This would be a tremendous pastoral mess, nightmare. Because literally, you would never really know if, if the sacrament was valid. Yes? Yeah, well, my um, question, um, so great verses, right? Um, I guess for, for you, um, I would like to hear your response. 
since we're going to be required more as Catholics than other religions. Um, what does necessarily mean more? What, what does that look like? What does more look like? Yeah, we're going to be required. Uh, I think I think I think it means we're expected to be saints more than because we have all the means of salvation, and we do. It, it is it can't be denied. We have look at our tradition of mystics and great saints, which you don't find in other Christian confessions. Profound, connatural knowledge with God, experiential knowledge of God. We were talking about this, Matthias, you know, that you were talking about Sister Faustina or St. Faustina, Therese of Lisieux, Therese of, uh, Therese of Avila. Um, you find profound theological truths that, in their writings that comes not from study. It comes from an experience with Christ, with God, an ex- you know, a, a connatural love. A, a, a living with Jesus Christ crucified and risen from the dead. And um, it's, you know, so this is, this is what you, this is, this is the, you know, the concrete reality is what does more? It means we, you know, we have more of an obligation to become saints. And I think we, there, it, it is, it's it's an historical fact that you know we we do have a tradition of greater holiness and again i'm not trying to dismiss the the uh the beautiful faith the the authenticity of the faith of so many you know non-catholic christians evangelical christians especially but um you know how often have you found yourself listening to an evangelical christian Talk about their encounter with Christ and speak about it in such a way that you just think you want to say, the Eucharist, <laughs> the Eucharist, he's here. You know, he, he became man. It wasn't just for 33 years. He, he became present concretely among us and he didn't want that concrete embodied presence among us to be for simply a 33 year period he wanted to extend it all throughout the course of time if you've got nothing against the incarnation if you're all for the incarnation you're all in on the incarnation why are you not all in on the eucharist you just and it is true that for many converts of catholicism what is it that that is the primary cause of their conversion it's the Eucharist. It's the doctrine of the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist. Um, so we were talking about, like, or you were talking about the Orthodox Church a while ago, and we were talking about, like, the truth of the religions. I always had difficulty, I guess, with Orthodoxy because I feel like they have, a, they could have a good claim that they're, they, they're like they're the true religion because they could say, oh, you know, we had all these churches, but then the Church of Rome said, no, we're going to do papal supremacy. And then they split away from us who are the true church. So, like, I, I guess I'm wondering what's your, I guess, what's your counter to that? that thing? Like, the Roman church, like, said papal, papal supremacy and then they split away. Right? Yeah, that's, that's, well, that's just a falsification of history. It wasn't the Catholic Church making up uh, the papal supremacy. It was Christ who granted 
the, who established an office of headship in the church. It's, it's in the New Testament. <laughs> so how do you find it there? Well, I mean, to begin with, the list of the apostles. You know, the list varies. Not, not the names, but the order of the names, it varies, except for one, the first one, who is always Peter. In the Acts of the Apostles, who speaks in the name of the Twelve? Through the first chapters of Acts, it's Peter. And then, of course, you have the three Gospels of, of Luke, John, and Matthew uh, affirming the supremacy of Peter, each in their own way. So Luke, it's the Last Supper. And it's right on the coattails, incidentally, of Jesus predicting that Peter will deny him. He says, Peter, I pray for you so that when you've recovered in the when you have recovered, you will strengthen your brethren in the faith. You will strengthen your brethren. So, first of all, that follows on the coattails of his predicting Peter's denials, knowing full well. So, sin is not a a, a necessary um, impediment to holding this office. In John's Gospel, it's the risen Jesus telling Peter three times, "Feed my sheep." feed my lambs. In other words, whole, you know, exercise supreme headship in the church. And then, uh, and then there's Matthew 16. Uh, you, Peter, you are the rock, and on this rock I will build my church, and I entrust you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. The keys of the kingdom of heaven is a reference to Isaiah 22, in which the prime minister of, I think King Hezekiah, is entrusted with the keys to the kingdom. So it, it's, it establishes Peter as, as the prime minister of, of, uh, of Christ. Now, so what if one argues, well, okay, that's unique to Peter. But the logic of it is, extends beyond Peter. I mean, that, that there, in other words, Jesus himself recognizes the need for an office of headship, that the need for that office is not going to disappear with Peter's death. So, yes, there are certain things which are unique to Peter, but... With respect to the office itself of headship, that's not tied to Peter as such. Now, the question you asked about, you know what's an interesting, uh, there, was, there was uniform acknowledgement of this in various ways in the first millennium of Christianity. So, for instance, you had, um, you know, many of the fathers of the church very clearly assert Ambrose, for instance, uh, the, and, and um, Cyprian uh, of Carthage, that um, uh, um, that the office of uh, of the papacy, the Bishop of Rome, assures unity in the church. In uh, a dispute with another heresy, Saint Augustine appealed to the judgment of the Bishop of Rome. Augustine was himself a bishop. So Augustine recognizes that his authority as Bishop of Hippo of North Africa was not to the same level as the authority of the Bishop of Rome. So he appealed to the Bishop of Rome, and you know what he said when he, when he received the uh, response of the Bishop of Rome? The, in Latin it goes, Roma locuta est causa finita est. Rome has spoken, the matter is finished. The judgment of the Bishop of Rome is definitive and absolute for the universal church. Clement, the, uh, what, fourth pope, um, he wrote a letter to the church of Corinth. This is in 96 AD. Uh, to, there, there, was a, there was a scandal with their priests, and they had their own bishop. 
but um, but but Clement recognized that as Bishop of Rome, he had the authority as kind of mother church of the whole church to intervene in the affairs of another local church. And then finally, at the Council of Chalcedon, this, so this council met in 451, and uh, it was a council that, that uh, met in response to a Christological heresy that said that Christ did not have two natures, a human nature, a divine nature, but a mixed combination of the two. And the Pope at the time was Leo the Great. I quoted him earlier. Leo had written a letter the year before to the Archbishop of Constantinople called the Letter to Flavian. And the Council of, of Constantinople, or of Chalcedon in 451, opened with reading that letter. And what they said when they read the letter was this. This is the Council Fathers. The Council Fathers being bishops of the Greek-speaking East for you know, largely the most part, Peter has spoken through Leo. Peter has spoken through Leo. So the, the retort to the objection he raises, you know, Catholics have made up uh, papal headship, papal supremacy is, what do you do with all that? <laughs> what do you do with, with Greek-speaking bishops saying in 451, Peter has spoken through Leo? <laughs> um, yeah, so it's, um, you know... The Orthodox, it's a, the, the tra it's a tragic schism because, you know, John Paul II referred to Eastern Christianity, and he meant largely Eastern Orthodox Christianity, as the left lung, and Western Christianity, Western Catholicism, as the right lung of Christianity, yearning for the two lungs to breathe together. And there is so little that separates Orthodox, and there's, unfortunately, there's much historical messiness that accounts for the for the schism and not to be dismissed is the sacking of Constantinople by the Crusaders. That really was the final nail in the coffin. Uh, but that doesn't, still that doesn't allow, if I can just put it in this, this way, that doesn't allow the Orthodox to make up, make up history or to, to make up theological reasons which really aren't real reasons. I was wondering if you had any uh, perspective or response or opinion <clears throat> to Rod Dreher's book, The Benedict Option, which you're probably familiar with, in which he argues that uh, the current uh, indifference towards Christianity is progressing towards uh, an active persecution and that Christians will have to find some way to navigate through uh, not just a pluralistic society, but a, a hostile one. Uh, do you have a, a, an opinion of that? Yeah, I'm largely in agreement with it. Um, I also like the Benedict option. You know, the, the, the Benedict option is that uh, um, the church of the future will find itself smaller, but more vibrant. And that as, as you know, in Cardinal George of Chicago, before he died, you know, he, you know, he, you know this, he was, uh, he said that, um, I will die peacefully in my bed my successor will die in prison, and his successor will die a martyr. Okay, now, uh, he was using hyperbole, but at the same time, he was trying to speak the truth. Uh, but then he said, and then his successor will pick up the shards of broken civilization, as the church has always done, and seek to rebuild the culture. And we have gone through these cycles uh, of, of, of the culture at odds with Christianity, but the culture, you know, it's, Augustine called it the city of man. The city of man is destined to fall. 
And so it goes through these cycles of rising and falling. Uh, but the city of God, you know, the church will never fall. And so at times we find ourselves at odds in a, in a situation of animosity and hostility. Uh, and at other times, you know, we find ourselves at the heart of the culture building it up. But even in this age of hostility, I think, you know, the, the Benedict option is we still do our best effort at building up the culture. Uh, we don't enclose ourselves off, uh, uh, you know, uh, in our own uh, private spheres, but, you know, we rebuild the dike. We rebuild where we can and, and go out from there. I just want to thank you again uh, for coming out.